Are you managing a brand or working with a company that's looking to expand the presence or viability of its brand? Well, then you need to listen to Sun Yu talk about the iconic advantage that brands have and how you can apply some of the principles that he's found that the truly iconic brands globally use on a pretty consistent basis in order to establish their dominance in the market. In the interview, you'll come across some great tips, uh, case studies, and uh, some benefits of looking to enter the market at the highest point of entry. He works with Fortune 500 companies as well as mid-sized companies and has found this approach to be invaluable. I hope you enjoy the interview and I look forward to you joining me on my quest for the best. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Soon Yu. Soon is a best-selling author of Iconic Advantage, Don't Chase the New, Innovate the Old. He regularly consults business leaders on developing meaningful, iconic signature elements, signature moments, and signature communication, key concepts explained in his book. You most recently served as Global VP of Innovation at VF Corporation, parent organization to over 30 global companies, including North Face, Timberland, Nautica, and more. Uh, interested in starting an Asian funk band, but I had a couple of challenges as a uh, potential lead singer for an Asian funk band. One, I, I, I only had about one octave uh, range when it came to singing, and then two, I didn't I didn't know how to read music or I didn't know how to play any instruments. And so that didn't stop me. I, I grabbed about eight of my friends together, and we, over the course of about uh, half a year, figured out how uh, they could basically mask all my ills and help me create something fun for people. And so, yeah, we were a great party band. So that just gives you a little perspective that even when, when met with odds that seem insurmountable, it didn't stop us. We, we went out and we, we created an Asian funk band, and we had fun for about five years. So I thought that would be good perspective. <laughs> it truly is a characteristic of successful entrepreneurs, where if you don't have the answers, you don't have the skills, you don't have resources, you find a way to go out and get them. And that's really in that ex- example. I leaned on a lot of other folks, you know, and some of their skills and some of their um, ideas to basically figure out how to make a, a shared vision work. And I think that's also a great trait of entrepreneurs is, yes, you need to have the ability to have the solo drive to get things done, but you also need to pull in other people and other resources to help you. Couldn't agree more. Who is an early role model or a source of inspiration in your life? I, I think an early role model for me has always been my mother. You know, early on, I think she was very educated, a great math teacher in high school, and was basically um, being groomed to be the principal for the school. And then my father got a opportunity to go to graduate school in the States, and so we all picked up and moved. And, you know, coming from uh, a fairly, not, not a well-to-do family, um, my mom decided to do everything she could to contribute to, you know, our ability to move to a new country and to acclimate. And yeah, she, I I remember when I was uh, literally like two or three years old, she would go out and she would be cleaning the uh, restrooms and bathrooms of all these professors' houses. And she did that for the longest time, even though she had a college degree and she was an incredible mathematician in order to support our family. And so for me, uh, that memory and those images are forever burned in, um, you know, my mind. 
and always serve as an inspiration when finding myself in uncomfortable situations or circumstances where, you know, it, it, I just have to roll up my sleeves and get through it. So you moved at what age from where to where? When I was a little over almost three years old, I moved from Taiwan to Berkeley, California. And uh, we lived in graduate housing for a couple of years there. Then we moved to Davis, California, and also lived in graduate housing for a few years there. And now you spend your time working with organizations that are seeking to solve what types of problems? Tell me a little bit about your your ideal client. I think my ideal client, first and foremost, are folks who are very interested in, in learning and have a high degree of curiosity, who know they have a lot of uh, unique skills, capabilities, and experiences, but also are, are seeking sort of, sort of leveraged guidance. Probably the best way to think about it is uh, there's a lot that they know, but Oftentimes, they're looking for somebody to frame it in a simpler way and so that they can focus on maybe trying to answer the two or three most important questions and act on those versus, I think, the dozen or so that they're facing at the moment. And so part of, you know, part of what I love doing is coming into organizations and helping them kind of simplify what are the key questions and then giving them really simple frameworks to answer those questions. So can you give me an example of a client and what they were struggling with when they decided to bring you in? Yeah, I'll give you, I can give you a couple examples. Let me start with, um, since I know you have an audience of, uh, you know, everything from Fortune 500s to, um, I'm sure, startups. I recently was, uh, was working for a smaller company, not a Fortune 500, but not even a Fortune 1000, but a company that was uh, had a very unique uh, product in the, the baby category, the, the baby products category. Uh, and their product was super unique, um, and it was made mainly in Asia and was very successful there, and they were looking to come into the U.S. And so their key challenge was they had a very distinctive product proposition and a wonderful story because the, the products were all made based on empathy from the founder who was this wonderful mom. I think their challenge was how did they or how do they come into a mature market and be literally the eighth competitor in that market. So what I worked with them on was, one, figuring out what was their distinct selling point that was really critical, that made them unique versus the competition and something that consumers and and, um, customers would find uh, meaningful and beneficial. And then the second question I really helped them try to uh, answer was, given that they were smaller and didn't have the biggest marketing budget in the world, what was the highest point of entry? that could create the most momentum, both in terms of marketing awareness, but also obviously sales and distribution. And so those are the uh, two two key challenges I help them tackle. That's important. I think that a lot of companies don't focus as much on the highest point of entry. They look for the low-hanging fruit, which ignores what will give them momentum, visibility, in addition to simple, straightforward income. How is it that you help a company overcome their hesitancy to pursue something which may not be immediately obvious? Yeah, so first and foremost, you know, you have to scratch the itch. We usually lay out the option that's most obvious to them, and we articulate that. We actually even plan it out and even show what are the, you know, the next five steps that need to happen and what's the likely business outcome. Consider it sort of scenario planning. So that is one scenario we give them. And then we say, okay, now that we've scratched that itch and, you know, the obvious thing is hire a distributor if you're going into a new market and, and you know, take your current marketing and adjust it for the uh, clients here 
and um, go after the channel that everybody else goes after. So that, you know, we lay out that option and make sure that it's very clear and one where they feel very confident if that was the one they were going to pursue, they could actually execute on that. Then what we do is say, okay, forget everything we just said, okay? And let's think about it this way. Let's think about it if you have half the resources and half the money, okay? And what would you do in those circumstances? And so then we lay out two or three different alternatives, whether it be, you know, really focused on who might you actually win over first that would then, over time, get you much more momentum later. And we also have them, I think, refocus on this idea of instead of going broad, going really narrow, owning something and very distinctive and meaningful to that narrow group, and then really using social media, using word of mouth, using all these new technology and digital tools to bring out the love and the passion that this small group has to a much broader audience and use those folks as really your evangelists to then build a larger brand. And so that's generally the approach. The human approach is scratch stitch, you know, make sure you, you, you tackle the one they really are thinking is in their head, but then have them think alternatively and really have them think about planting a seed that really sticks and, and giving a great fertilizer and soil and, and watering it and then having a little patience to see where that could take you. In your book, Iconic Advantage, you cite a quote from Steve Jobs to Mike Parker, who's the CEO of Nike, and he says, he was quoted as saying to uh, Mike Parker, uh, Steve Jobs says, Nike makes some of the best products in the world, products you just lust after, but you also make a lot of crap. Just get rid of the crappy stuff and focus on the good stuff. How does that relate to companies that are looking at their pipeline and and looking to figure out where to focus? Sure. I've worked with a lot of Fortune 500 companies, obviously, in the apparel space, but also in other spaces, whether it be automotive, whether it be electronics, whether it be um, hospitality. And I basically share this quote, and the question I always ask them is, do you know which of your properties, your brand, your product franchises are delivering your most profit? And do you, of those, you know which ones are truly iconic, ones where people will pay a lot more money for, will they line up for, where they're considered the standard bearer for whatever benefit they deliver to that category. Oftentimes, I actually get blank stares, and let's assume they actually know the answer to that. Then I'll ask them the second question. Do you know how much profit and revenue these properties deliver for you. Again, usually blank players are crickets, okay, but assuming they can answer that, what I found, or usually I go and do the research for them, what I found is that these properties tend to be anywhere from 10 to 100 times more profitable than the rest of the um, uh, portfolio. You know, you do a simple parade on analysis and you'll see, but it's it's more than 80-20, it's like, uh, it's more like uh, 99-1, okay, and, and, and so it's a big wake-up call. Then I will ask them the second question, which is, what percent of your resources are focused on making sure that 1% that's delivering 99% of your profit is taken care of, is growing at double digits each year, is cherished and loved, you know, has an innovation pipeline and platform specifically focused on celebrating what makes those properties iconic or potentially iconic? And then again, uh, usually it's crickets. And so that's generally what I walk people through is, you know, the need to actually focus in on not just going after shiny new objects. In fact, it's actually taking your cash cows, milking them, and then buttering them up. And taking actually all your shiny new ideas that you have, but instead of going after new spaces, 
take those ideas and actually focus them on those cash cows to make them even more exciting, making them more meaningful, creating more delight with your consumers. And so that's what the focus of the book is, is how you take new innovation but apply it against the old. Kids obviously hear the passion in your voice. It sounds like you're on a mission to get across some of these ideas. What inspired you to write the book? And what is the, the most important thing you want people to get from reading Iconic Advantage? Don't chase the new, innovate the old. The, the thing that really inspired me to write the book is my journey in the last probably 30 years of doing innovation, design, marketing, branding. I've always sort of veered towards wanting to do new things, new product lines, uh, new initiatives, new technologies. And so... Most of my career, if you look at it, has been either, you know, an innovation, it's been a new product, um, it, it's been in startups. And what I found over those 30 years is I had a hard time commercializing new ideas, as most people do. And, you know, recently I was at VF, and I always talk about the fact that our innovation initiative led to $2 billion worth of innovation. I always wonder if I spent $3 billion trying to get to those $2 billion when you add in all of the not only fixed costs, but the soft costs that you don't necessarily attribute to trying to launch innovation. And, you know, when I look at my history of so-called success, it's actually more littered with a lot more failures. And, and so this struggle to innovate and to commercialize new ideas sort of made me very curious. How were other companies uh, taking their innovation and getting much more out of it? And that was the genesis to look at about almost 50 companies that were doing it very differently. And when I look at these 50 companies, companies such as the BMWs of the world, the Nikes, the Apples, the Burberrys, people that, you know, had been doing it for quite a while and been very successful doing it, they took a much different approach, which was they took a lot of their shiny new ideas but applied it against uh, franchises that had momentum, franchises that were their strengths, franchises where customers already loved them, where customers already accepted them into their distribution channels, where they already had manufacturing and capabilities and know-how, where if you increased actually volume across it, it would actually make it even more profitable. And so that was a big aha moment for me. And on top of that, not only did I find out that this strategy of innovating was, was deliberate and intentful, but there were all these principles and best practices relating to doing that. And, again, when I went to visit most organizations and I asked those simple questions that I, I shared with you earlier, um, the answer was generally, no, we don't know what makes us iconic, and, no, we, we don't actually have somebody even assigned to the iconic franchise. No, we don't have investments against that, nor a business plan, nor an innovation platform. Just like consumers fall in love with people, they also fall in love with brands. And just like people, when you fall in love with somebody, you don't want to fall out of love with it. And if somebody's in love with you, you're not going to do things to hurt that relationship, or at least you shouldn't. You shouldn't be trying to find or look at the, the next thing that walks past you, nor should you be doing things in your relationship that don't cherish it, that don't invest against it. And, and the same thing applies to the brand. When people are in love with the brand, uh, they want to stay in love with the brand. They don't want to. They don't want to be on the fence in that relationship. So it's really critical for those of us who are caretakers of brands to treat that relationship as a love relationship, and do everything we can to make sure that consumers who love your brand stay in love with the brand. And soon you've done a terrific job synthesizing a lot of the knowledge that comes from your interviews with other companies. In particular, I really like the 
the iconic brand pyramid. It covers the four simple points, the point of difference, the promise, the personality, purpose, and values. And I think that even larger companies who are managing iconic brands might be missing some of these points that you cover in the book. Can you talk about one of these signature elements that you think that a lot of companies overlook or could maximize further than they, they take it now? Sure. Well, you know, I'm glad you bring up the iconic brand pyramid. That's an important foundational piece to build iconicity. If you don't do that part, I think, one, you may not be being iconic for the right reason, and then two, you may not have the foundation to be both consistent and at the same time, both consistent at the same time allow for change and newness because you need to be grounded in something. So I, the, the, the iconic brand pyramid is very critical, and uh, I'm going to walk you through that really quickly and then talk about how that relates to this idea of a signature element. So when you think about the iconic brand pyramid, it starts with kind of what do you care about? And and that really is around this idea of what are your what's your purpose? You know, why you wake up in the morning, why do your employees wake up in the morning, and what are your values? What do you care about? And what are those guiding values that when no one else is in the room, your employees know what to do? And so that's where it starts off with is sort of what do you care about? The next question on the pyramid is, you know, really around uh, who are you? And it's about your personality. And I always like to think about the um, 12 archetypes that outline in the book Heroes and Outlaws. And it's a great way to think about, you know, which one or two archetypes are you because it's because you don't want to be consistent. You want to be consistent about how you represent your personality to people, um, and this way you build that trust. The next two are very outward-facing. The, the next two questions in the pyramid as you move up uh, is around, um, you know, what do you promise people? What are you there to deliver? What's your commitment, and what are you promising your consumers? And so that's really the third question. The last one is what makes you different, you know, as you are delivering this promise, what makes you special, what makes you stand out versus your competition, and why should it take notice of you? And when you think about signature elements, they should be an embodiment of the last one, which is what makes you different, your key point of difference. Because if you have signature elements that people know you for, but they don't speak to what your key point of difference are, then they're wasted signature elements. They might create awareness and recognition, but if you're going to create awareness and recognition, make sure it's awareness and recognition around your key point of difference. A good example is Nike. When you look at the Air Max, their main point of difference, their main signature element is the air pocket in the sole. And it's great because it really speaks to the key point of difference of having higher performance and higher buoyancy than other shoes. And so that signature element works really well in supporting their brand pyramid. And so when uh, when folks are thinking about developing signature elements, which can be everything from product features, it can be a signature style. You think about Burberry and the checkered pattern, that really, that pattern connotes sort of the idea of classic uh, English elegance. It could be a signature silhouette. So if silhouette could be another opportunity to create a signature element. If I said to you, think of a bottle with a line in the neck of it, what would that remind you of, Bill? The coronavirus, right? You got it, exactly. So there's a lot of different ways to create these signature elements, and it's really critical that you find those. And, you know, when you think about the lime and the neck of a beer bottle, you think corona, but you also think lime, you think beach, 
and you think about the entire vibe of being on vacation. So it really speaks to sort of their key point of difference. And their key point of difference is that's the beer you drink when you're on vacation. So, again, when you're looking at signature channels, make sure they actually reinforce the key point of difference that's in your iconic brand pyramid. I think reinforce and align is something that listeners really ought to take note of because it's that coordinated effort between all of your signature elements that really make your brand powerful and stand out without having to invest tons more money. What it really does is helps make the money you do invest give you payback in a faster and more powerful way, if I'm reading that correctly. That's absolutely right. Um, you know, there's a little le- less, a less known story about uh, the Nike Air Mac. There was a math engineer by the name of M. Frank Rudy who was actually charged with uh, creating um, helmets for the astronauts, and the goal was to protect the astronauts' heads from trauma. And he had certain design constraints. You know, uh, astronaut outfits were tend to be very bulky and very heavy, and so he wanted to create something light and that wasn't very bulky. So he actually came up with the idea of putting air pockets as a way of protecting the head from trauma. And he thought, wow, this works so well there. What might it work in shoes? And he shot it all around. And uh, unfortunately, most companies actually turned them down. But obviously, Nike, having the vision it did, said, this sounds really interesting. Let's try it. And so their first iteration that came out in the late 70s was called the Tailwind. And if you saw the Tailwind, you and I are looking at it and we go, uh, there's nothing to think about it because that little air pocket was hidden from your eye. You, you couldn't see it. And the only way you knew that there was any new technology in it was through a hang tag or through the point of sale material. And when these are consumers... Most consumers said it feels really gimmicky. So to your point, your signature elements need to be visible, and they need to really shout out to the world, this is why I'm different, and why I'm different is also me and relevant to you. And so you're exactly right. That alignment uh, is incredibly important. So you've been so helpful, and, and I want to thank you for sharing your insights and ideas about the iconic advantage and what companies and company leaders need to do in order to implement this. What would you like to leave as a a parting word to our audience? And also, how do people find you for more details about how you can work together? Sure. I I think the one thing I would would leave listeners with is this idea. And I I tell big corporations this. I tell Fortune 100 companies this and, and CEO and boardrooms the same thing. What's your signature? And this works both from... If you're managing a small business or you're managing Fortune 500, but it also works on a very personal level. When you leave the room, what fragrance do you leave the room with? What do people actually remember you for? And this is very important. I think uh, most of the times, you know, especially as humans, we spend most of our time trying to fix what's wrong versus celebrate what's right. I mean, a good example is whenever you get a performance review, let's say every three or, I don't know, every year, you tend to focus on the 10% of the things that were said that you weren't doing well or this one comment that just stuck with you that was really negative instead of saying, wow, look at all these things I'm really good at. Why don't I double down, triple down on those things and become even more known for those things and find out on those things how I might even be more distinctive versus, you know, sort of a, a, a broad generality, oh, you're really good at A, how do I be good at A, and a niche of A, you know? And so I really have, I really encourage people to think about what's your signature. And a good test to figure out whether or not you're even on the right path to becoming iconic is if you ask just three of your clients 
three of your customers or three of your friends, what's your signature? One, would they all say the same thing? And then assuming they, they passed that first test, well, let's say two out of three said the same thing. That's fine. Would what they said be meaningful, differentiated, and unique? Or would it be platitudinal and basically anyone that was competing in your space or, or basically in the same role with you in the company, could they also say the same thing? And, and so that's the test of whether or not you're really pushing for distinctive relevance, which is an important goal or an important quality to really become both iconic at a Fortune 500 level, but also on a very personal level. Lastly, yes, you can definitely reach me at uh, um, my website, soonyou.com, and you can also follow me at uh, Twitter and, and on LinkedIn at, at SoonSpeaks. Again, distinctive advantages that are unique to yourself to advance your own career and to your company and their, their brands will make all the difference. Learn more from Soon Yi, the author of Iconic Advantage. Thanks so much, Soon. You bet. Thanks, Bill. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I'd appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments, and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.